0: Welcome, everyone, to Dr. John Bedker's Leadership Podcast, the podcast focused on leadership. The episode will begin shortly. Thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm John Bedker, your host. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Dr. John Bedker Leadership Podcast. So glad to have you all with us today. We're gonna talk about a fairly important topic, perhaps one of the most important topics of our century coming up. And that is this notion, this struggle, the tension that exists between autocracy and democracy. Now, at the end of each of these, of course, is a leader, an autocrat, a democrat. Um, We're gonna talk about some of that from a leadership perspective today. It's an important conversation and one I'm sure we'll have many times to think about as we go forward in this century. I'm going to start with uh, an article from the Harvard Business Review. It's written by Robert Sutton back in the year 2007, June 11th to be exact, June 11th, 2007. The title of the article is Threat or opportunity. And I'm going to read a fair amount of the key points from this article, but that's really this discussion today about leadership. Autocracy versus democracy. The autocrat is grounded in the threat and the democracy leader is seeking to provide opportunity. So this piece I think is a good starting point, Threat or Opportunity, again from the Harvard Business Review in 2007 by Robert Sutton. Sutton was writing about success and failure, a theme that he's obviously interested in. He's talking about what happens if an enterprise fails. Failure, failure, he says, may lead to deeper thinking and hopefully learning. Well, he also says that some of his colleagues, he mentions um, uh, Shamil Ellis as an example, uh, one of his colleagues talking about though both success and failure and how they lead to a richer learning than just looking at one or the other, to look at just the failure or looking at just Success. This research, talking about success and failure, sort of post mortem, is important. It's, I would argue is essential for managers. Those of you that are regular listeners know I've I've actually done podcasts about reflective practice, um, Shon's work in in particular. Um, this is similar. This is related. This is an assess- essential message for a manager. Managers, leaders should do postmortems, so they don't make that same mistake over and over. Okay, seems clear, almost obvious. But what Sutton writes is, as he thought about the success or failure, he realized that there was an related and equally crucial question about, well, what if something is going particularly well or particularly bad? What can leaders do while these bad things or good things are happening? What sort of learning and execution of change could occur during these times? Because we know that organizations, businesses, institutions, where you work is probably not static. It is probably dynamic, ever-changing. This change paradigm, places pressure on leaders to make the best out of a bad situation or to try to optimize that good situation. Now there's been, as I've mentioned, a lot of research about this, talking about, in particular, the bad. Organizations in crisis. There is one article, though, that Sutton mentions that he considers particularly important, particularly vital, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. And that is the article by Alan Meyer. It's a classic, old article, 1982. Came from the Administrative Science Quarterly, and it's titled, Adapting to Environmental Jolts. Well, that's really what we're talking about today, is the, is a real jolt. There's this absolute clear separation, distinction between going down that path as a leader of being an autocrat, autocracy, and trying to be a democrat, democracy. And by democrat, of course, I mean small d, not political, but democratic thinking. So this article on environmental jolts really, I think, is particularly valuable for us today. Meyer analyzes a crisis in this article in 19 hospitals in the San Francisco Bay Area. After a major malpractice insurer, the insurance company insuring these practitioners, these physicians, says abruptly, we are going to terminate your insurance for malpractice. This was going to affect some 4,000 physicians in Northern California. And they said that they would re-insure these physicians, but only at an increase in premium of 400%. Wow. So we're going to cancel your insurance. You can get it back if you're willing to pay four times what you had been currently paying. Well, the anesthesiologists in these 19 hospitals all banded together, and they agreed to go on a one month strike. This was back in 1975. And the strike was to do no elective surgery. Well, this caused an immediate and dramatic reduction in hospital admissions and perhaps quite importantly to the hospitals and the owners of the hospitals, a drastic drop in income in their cash flow. Well, in researching this article, Myron covered many different Circumstances, many different situations in 19 different hospitals, how they would respond. Here are some of the results. One of the most interesting overarching findings was that hospitals that survived the strike best had leaders who consistently interpreted it as an opportunity and not a threat. So there we go. We're already at the heart of this and why it's so important for all of us in our leadership journeys. When something goes wrong, goes bad, what will our response be? How will we respond? How will we interpret these events? And the research shows that those that can survive these types of crises, environmental jolts, uh, as the article is titled, see opportunity rather than threat. Here's just a couple of the examples from the article. One hospital used the strike as a dramatic opportunity to celebrate and to, in real life, execute. There are no layoff policy. Well, this incredibly increased staff loyalty during and after the strike. Physicians subtly supported the hospital by defining a broader set of cases as emergencies during the strike, which meant they did more surgeries and admitted more patients than other hospitals. And of course, ultimately then made more money. Another hospital viewed the strike as a completely different kind of opportunity, using it as a chance to do layoffs, deep layoffs. This hospital had been non-performing, non-functioning, non-profitable for a long period of time. It had a number of embedded issues. Now, it's never fun or pleasant to try to execute this type of strategy, to do layoffs. And the hospital certainly did not have that political capital to implement this type of strategy before the strike. But afterwards, administrators believe that taking this opportunity to lay off people that perhaps should have been laid off a long time ago, gave them the license to make changes and with clarity they concluded, avoided an inevitable bankruptcy. So hard, difficult choice, but in the end, accomplished a very positive goal, avoiding bankruptcy. Several other hospitals saw the strike as an opportunity to devote resources to attract non-surgical patients, which not only helped them get through, endure the crisis, but gave them a greater income stream after the strike was over. Meyer showed in his article that less successful hospitals framed the strike as a debilitating threat, making few if any attempts to attract non-surgical patients, making few if any changes in how they marketed their services, refusing to consider proposals that they change an organizational strategy, and communicating serious doubts about the ability of their staff members to perform effectively during the crisis. So in these years since this work by Meyer, widely published, widely cited, a great deal of organizational and psychological research has been published on the power of framing. And that's a term and a word I would like you to capture, framing. Framing shows that whether a challenge is framed as an opportunity or a threat, is is the framing, that that has a huge effect on how people respond. So, consistent with Meyer's work, the opportunity frame leads to far more adaptive behavior than the threat frame. Now, there's been a lot of work about this, and a gentleman by the name of of Kamen, has actually got the Nobel Prize for what he coins prospect theory. Really another kind of framing. So talking about the gain or losses that could result, but how you think about it, what the prospect is, what the frame is, has a big effect on behavior. So today we're talking about autocracy, versus democracy. Well, let's talk about what that really entails from a leadership point of view. Well, if you're one of those people that may be vulnerable to an authoritarian organization, government, economic circumstance, you may become quite vulnerable and likely to lose your status. You might lose your place. You certainly might lose some prestige. What you're going to do is now become subservient. That's a difficult and complex idea to absorb. So that vulnerability to authoritarianism really can have some fairly far-reaching consequences. This psychology, if you will, of autocratic leaders creates a hierarchical system of power based on dominance and submission. Again, this is that threat, right? They're creating a threat. And even at times that threat may be realized through force, even violence at times. We've certainly seen that in the United States, most recently in January 6th. People that would seek autocracy, not democracy, storm the Capitol, use force and violence to accomplish an autocratic goal, to support their autocratic leader. Now this flip side is equally important to capture, and that is that psychology of democratic leaders. Well, the democratic leaders trying to create a framework for sharing power, based upon things like individual dignity, worth, seeking equality, and as the founding fathers in the United States said, unalienable human rights. So let's go to leadership and the basis for the United States in one of our famous documents. Let me sort of flip a quote. If our democratic government is of the people, by the people and for the people, then think about this now then democratic businesses should be seeking to be for the workers and by the workers. So, what do we have in reality in the United States? Well, we have a very interesting and unique system, a challenged system. And I'll get to another piece of work here in just a moment. But what we have is a democracy, at least at the moment in the United States, but our working lives, our workplaces are largely autocracies. So there are certainly some that have democratic ownership and more democratic management structures, but largely American business, American capitalism comes from a foundation of autocracy. Okay. So there's a tension between capitalism and democracy. And this is something to be very mindful of as a leader because the transition, if there was one from an autocratic towards a democratic organization, that will take a long, long time, a long commitment. It is a cultural transformation and it would need to begin with a change in leadership and management style. So democracy certainly can increase engagement and increase in people's satisfaction in their jobs, but it requires that the workers have this shared understanding. There's a challenge right there of the meaning of democracy in the workplace. So it's hard because we're all different. You know, in America, we say that that diversification is one of the things that makes us great. And I think that is true. But differences also separate us. So there's a real challenge to not only engaging in democratic workplace, but in sustaining it. Whereas the autocrat has a very different calculus, if you will. Let me just quickly talk about that. The autocratic leader, for instance, could make perhaps faster decisions. Why? Well, no distractions or opposition. They're an autocrat. It's not about we. It's about me. The democratic leader, on the other hand, must be engaged, must be involved, has to then make decisions that are more we oriented. He needs to be ensuring that he's helping those he has been charged to lead. Much more challenging, much more time consuming effort. Back to the autocrat, that autocratic leader, he can really drive organizational efficiency. You know, when should that organization turn left? When he says so, end of story. On the other hand, that democratic leader might say, well, turning left might be the right thing, but I want to make sure that the employees understand the why, the when, the how, the where, you know, answer the key questions so that they have that sense of ownership, of shared vision, of shared value, which creates a sense of pride. But it's a much, much bigger challenge than just ordering it as the autocrat does. Power, of course, as the autocrat, hands of one or small number of people. Again, as I've mentioned before, in the democratic scenario, not everyone's gonna always agree identically with their brothers and sisters in the workplace. No, there's going to have to be some coalescing, some agreeing, some sense of responsibility on the one hand of an employee to understand the issue and two, to agree at some potential compromise of the issue based upon relevant facts, and, of course, resources. So the autocrat and the democrat, again, small d, are very, very different forms of leadership. Well, there is a book, and I want to mention this also. The book is called Capital in the 21st Century. It's by a French economist, Thomas Piketty. Incredible book, large, dense book, some 600 pages. I could not begin to share with you the minute details. Analytically driven, data-based, really, really well-supported arguments. And it goes in the briefest of terms, like this. That capitalism, that system that we have in the United States and largely in the Western world, generates inequality for society. It does this by increasing the concentration of wealth so that the few have much and the many have Less. Now he, I'm incredibly oversimplifying here, but it is an incredibly well developed argument. It raises a number of questions about the why and the history, particularly in Europe and North America, but the conclusion is the same that over time, what happens is the capital, that rate R, as he calls it, increases greater than G, which he calls growth. So when these are divergent rather than convergent, you create this gap. If you and I each had the same job, and it paid the same amount. But you had, let's say, inherited a million dollars. And at the end of each year, each of us spends our salary on our life, on living. Well, at the end of the year, I would have zero if I spent my salary. And from your salary, you might have zero, but you have a million dollars that you had inherited, let's say. But during the year, that million dollars earned something. Over time, capital invested does earn. Now, it might not earn every day or every month or every quarter, but over a long period of time, it accumulates. Wealth accumulates. So at the end of that year, that person has greater... Than a million dollars. And over this long period of time, I may get a raise, they may get a raise, we continue to spend that money, but that core amount that the other person had continues to grow and grow and grow. Well, what happens is that the wealth disparity, the inequality between the two of us becomes larger. And it becomes such that we create a society of haves and have-nots. We largely do away with the middle class. We have the upper classes and everyone else. This is in briefest of terms, Piketty's argument that the concentration of wealth leads to an inequality that continues to grow over time. Well, the critics of Thomas Piketty's work go something like this. This is from a Financial Times article that took Piketty to task saying he failed to answer a fundamental question. Why does inequality matter? Well, there are a whole bunch of answers. Let me just touch on one. And one of the reasons that it matters so much is healthcare, the largest cause of bankruptcy in the United States is results from a catastrophic healthcare event. Well, if you're one of those haves, if you had money and that money continued to grow, your capital, and then you had some event, using healthcare as an example of why it's important to understand this condition of capitalism that creates inequality, Well, you could weather that storm. You could receive the quality and quantity of health care that you needed. If you didn't, you may not be able to. All right, so there's Thomas Piketty. That's very, very brief and quick, but I certainly think that the argument is one that you as leaders should know. I think it's important that you spend some time learning about some of these major issues Because as we go down this path in this century, we are going to be confronted with this dichotomy, this tension between autocracy and democracy. And if the form of government, as in the United States, is democracy, and we are able to sustain it, we're going to have to confront capitalism in a way that leaders have yet to do how leaders respond to the tension between capitalism and democracy is an important, in fact, crucial conversation. And on the other hand, for the autocrat to maintain and sustain power, they similarly are going to have to concentrate capital in a way that takes from the majority. So this is an important leadership concept, an important leadership notion. I think we should all spend some time and reflect on it. Thanks so much, everyone. I really appreciate it. I hope everyone has a happy holidays. We're going to take just a short break and we'll be right back the first of the year. Take care. Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Dr. John Bedker's Leadership Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please tell your friends and, of course, please follow our podcast and subscribe. Thank you again for tuning in.